Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Tom McMillan, author of Armistead and Hancock. Tom McMillan is the author of Armistead and Hancock, Behind the Gettysburg Legend of Two Friends at the Turning Point of the Civil War. Now we're talking about Lewis Armistead, who was a Confederate officer during the war, and Winfield Scott Hancock, who was a Union officer during the war. What drew you to these two men? It all started, uh, Phil, with, you know, with the movie Gettysburg, and which is based on a novel, Killer Angels, and I, I don't think that th those are the two most impactful works, I think, on an entire generation of Gettysburg visitors. But the novel is a novel. It's based on fiction. So it's based on historic fiction. So a lot of it is not true. Uh, the novelist, Michael Shard, did it so well that you can't separate the uh, fact from pitching sometimes. And one of the most amazing stories, maybe the most to me, of, that, of the movie was the story of Armistead and Hancock, how close they were, uh, you know, almost brothers. Uh, they had, uh, were longtime friends in the U.S. Army, and they fought together in the Mexican War. And then they, the Civil War tore them apart. And you know, they had a teary-eyed farewell out in California. And then two years later, they meet in, in Gettysburg. Pickett's charge is the most famous attack of the war. And Armistead's men attack Hancock's men and both fall wounded. Just this incredible story. But as a former journalist, I'm reading, I'm thinking, I don't know that this sounds like it's 100% true. And I know it's fiction. So I just thought I wanted to try to dig behind the story and see what, what really happened. Because it had such an impact when I started. I have a lot of friends who are serious students of the battle. And I said, what do you know about Armistead and Hancock? And almost to a person, they recited everything from the movie. So it, it has such, people sometimes forget that it's not a documentary. It's a, I found it to be a great story, a compelling story, just not exactly the one you uh, heard or learned in, in, in the movie and the, the novel, which affects you know, the rangers and guides. It, 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 it affects every aspect of Gettysburg today. So was there a point at which you, you mentioned that you were starting to wonder about you know, how faithful the portrayal was, did you start to find facts that were not consistent or did you just start off saying, hmm, I wonder what's going on here? I started finding no facts. I was, I, it, there were six or seven stories that are the foundation of that movie. And I, I tried to find out more about this story and I couldn't find anything. Um, there's very little written about Armistead at all. There was just, I mean, he's, he's the Confederate general who achieved the deepest penetration into the angle at Pickett's Charge. There has to be a lot written about this guy. There's a, there's a little marker where he fell in the angle at Gettysburg. There's one book, 1994, 64 pages, uh, by Wayne Motts, who's a revered battlefield guy. It's very well done, but that's the only thing in book form on Lewis Armistead. There's a lot written about Hancock, really a lot, from the end of the 19th century till up to a couple of years ago. You know, he was a hero of the battle. He lived 20 years after the war. He ran for president. There's a, there's a lot to write about. But most of those books barely mention Armistead, and some don't mention him at all. So it's like, was this really a story? Part of it was because I couldn't find anything, if this makes sense, drove me to try to find something about it. And it was, it was over, I, I started researching it, as I think probably a lot of authors will tell you, amateur authors like me, I started researching it long before I had the idea to write a book about it. I was just interested in the story. And as I picked one thing or two, a little, little tidbit here, a little tidbit there, I said, I, 
I, I think there might be a story here, and I think it might be valuable because there's an interesting story. Again, it's just it's not the same as you as you as you learned about in in the movie. And I've given some early book talks on this, and I can see it in the audience's faces because everybody kind of the movie is so powerful and so compelling that it draws you in, and you you believe every word. Now, what's something from the movie that people may know about that you found out wasn't true or wasn't quite true? Well, the I think the most famous scene of Armistead and Hancock is when Armistead is on the eve of Pickett's charge. Armistead is having a conversation, an emotional conversation with his commanding officer, James Longstreet. And he's talking about the emotional farewell with, with Hancock out in California in 1861. And he says, when, so help me, if I ever raise my hand against you, may God strike me dead. It's just a powerful scene you're thinking, and you're thinking, that's how close these guys were. They were almost brothers. Armistead, who was re really a hard-nosed soldier, couldn't bring himself to think of a fighting against, against Hancock. But then I looked, you know, there's only one person who was at that little meeting. And there are many questions whether the meeting even happened, which I think it did. Only one person ever wrote about it. It was Hancock's wife, Elmira. And she said, she did quote Armistead as saying, and may God strike me dead, but it was in a, a different context. May God strike me dead if I'm ever forced to leave the soil of my native state. So it's almost as though Armistead's saying, I'll fight a defensive war, but not an invasion of the North, which is a slightly different and less emotional part of the story. So that starts, okay, now I know that the biggest, the most impactful scene in the movie wasn't based on fact. And so let's dig in and, and see what happened, see what kind of friends they were and see what really happened. And, and, and also try to find out if, if, if this, this uh, famous meeting between them out in California as they headed off to war really happened. So that was, it, was, it was motivating. It was motivating not only as an author, but just as a student of the battle. I was in, you know, it, was a, it was a labor of love in the sense that I was interested in this story anyway, even if it, even if it had never turned into a book. So was that scene and that, that dialogue, was that from the novel that moved into the yes, movie? Yes, yes. So would Shara have had access to this writing from Almara? I'm sure he would have. Um, I think, but, but also, you know, you're, 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 writing a, you're writing a novel, you're enhancing the story, you're trying to underscore that, you only have so much time. Um, the one thing I found out that there was very little, almost nothing written or spoken about the story of Armistead and Hancock in the late 19th century. There was literally nothing early in the 20th century. It wasn't until the 1950s when the famous historian Bruce Catton in his series of books, and Glory Road on Gettysburg, he writes about the friendship. And it's clear that he used Elmira's book as, as his source. It's the first time I could find anywhere that someone had used her book as a source. And from that point on, it was such a compelling story. It took off. And Shelby, Shelby Foote picked it up for his trilogy. He writes about it. Michael Shara certainly picked it up for Killer Angels, the movie Gettysburg picks it. And now it's, it's kind of ironic. Now it's one of the most famous stories of the battle. It was one of those overnight sensations that took, took 100 years. The story was there, but it, it didn't hit them. It wasn't so impactful back then. It really wasn't until Catton did it. So I think just based on that, uh, and, you know, if you're, if you're, I'm not a novelist, but you can see what they do, especially historic novelists. They take the foundation of history. There's a foundation of history in everything Shara writes. But you enhance it, you, you know, you, uh, uh, you, you make it even more compelling to draw that reader in. And, but unless you go then look at the true history behind it, you believe that's what happened. And the movie just added to that. Probably was 
I'm, I'm certainly was more impactful because you see it on the scene. You see the emotion in Armistead's face. You see Longstreet's reaction, and that you know that scene sticks. Those scenes in the movie really stick with you as the as the story of Armistead and Hancock. Now, these two men were not unique in their relationship and meeting each other on the battlefield. That was a very common thing during yes. the Civil War. Uh, is, is there too much attention on these guys? Do, are there other relationships that maybe should be focused on? There are, many, there are many relationships. You're, you're true. A lot of these guys were, were fellow soldiers in, in the U.S. Army and served together on the frontier as they did, fought together in the Mexican War as they did. So you build that bond as soldiers, you know, fighting in a war. But there are some elements here that separate it. The, uh, assuming that it's true, which I believe it is, you know, the farewell out in California, these two guys, that's kind of the ultimate kind of story of what the Civil War did to the country, right? These friends, and now they're going, one day they're friends and they're in the same army, and the next day they're going off to fight each other, and one's in a different army. They become enemies overnight. So, and, and then the fact that it led to them meeting at Pickett's Charge, you know, the, the most famous attack in the most famous battle. And it was Armistead's men attacking Hancock's men, and they both fall wounded, and Armistead is mortally wounded. So most friendships don't check all those boxes. There were a lot of friendships. There are a lot of compelling friendships. As I point in the book, you can make a case that uh, Winfield Scott Hancock was closer to another Confederate general, Henry Heath, than he was to Armistead. But the rest of the story doesn't have the, this, the same texture. So they were friends. There was definitely, a you know, when, you, when you're doing a book on... Uh, on uh, two guys who are friends in the Civil War, you better find out if they were friends. So uh, I, I'm, I found out they were friends. I'm confident they were good friends. They were not almost brothers. Uh, they weren't even best friends in the modern sense in that they spent so much time away from each other. But they served on the frontier together for 16 months. They fought in the Mexican War. They did interact uh, sometime in the years before the Civil War. And they had this, this teary-eyed farewell. And we know also that Armistead said something about Hancock, about how, what, what a good friend he was uh, when he was wounded in, in the Anglo Pickus charts. So all of that kind of, I think, correctly puts a focus on this friendship. Because it is, it is reflective of what the Civil War did to the country, did, did to the soldiers. Uh, you know, and, and part of our story we can get into a little later is how difficult this decision was for some. For some, it was a very easy decision. Uh, Hancock, it was a very easy decision. Armistead really struggled with his decision. Um, but, but he, you know, he, he chose to fight, fight for the Confederacy, and uh, here we are. Well, let's talk about this California experience that, that they had together. Yes. Uh, when were they in California? What were they doing out there? After, after, uh, after the Mexican War, they, they served together for 16 months on the frontier before the Mexican War. That's where the friendship was, 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 was formed, uh, at, uh, at Fort Towson and Fort Washington, both in the Oklahoma Territory. Then, they, you know, they're in the, the Mexican War, and they're both in the 6th Infantry, and, and they fight not quite side by side, but in the same regiment. They're both, both brevetted for gallantry. For most of the 13 years between 1848 and 61, between the end of the Mexican War and the beginning of the Civil War, they're hardly ever together. Uh, there was one time where the entire 6th Infantry makes this massive 1,000-mile march to the West Coast. They're together for several months then. Um, and, and, but they get there, and they're split up. But one thing I found, a piece of evidence I didn't know, at that point, it's, uh, it's 1859, so just two years before the Civil War, Armistead is sent to what is now Arizona to deal with some Mojave Indians who were harassing settlers. Hancock is sent to the very small town of Los Angeles, California, maybe 4,000 people back then, uh, and he's going to be the quartermaster there. And one of his duties is to supply Armistead's troops. I found 
with the help of my wife, who's a great researcher, a newspaper clipping from the Los Angeles Star in the summer of 1859 that talks about a dispatch arriving to uh, Captain Hancock from Major Armistead. So you can see, even though they're not together, the, the bond's still there. They're, you know, they're, they're connecting with one another. Now, Hancock stays in California. Armistead goes home for a while. He is reassigned out to San Diego. So he's about 120 miles south late December of 1860 is when he gets there. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a few months later, late spring, early summer, that this farewell gathering uh, is had. Armistead has, has made several trips up to L.A. It's not that far away. Uh, the newspapers, you can really, for amateur researchers, there, you can really find a lot about these guys in addition to Army records by following the newspapers. Newspapers love to write about the Army. And so there are accounts of Armistead being in Los Angeles. So it's, the circumstances certainly existed for, for this to happen. And then Elmira writes about it. She, it's, it's rather dramatic. You know, did she have all the, all the facts right? Probably not. Did she have the date right? Maybe not. Guest list. But there, were, there was enough there to make you believe that something did happen. And I found a second obscure account that talked about them meeting, not quite that dramatically, but them meeting uh, before they went off to war. So I believe they, they, they did meet. We can go into the meeting a little more if you, if, if you want to, but that's just kind of how it all came together and how I found out as much as I think you could find out why I think that second confirmation, I think it really did happen. Well, let's go back and learn a little bit more about these two men. Okay. Uh, where were they born? Where did they grow up? Armistead was a Virginian born in North Carolina, if, if that makes any sense. He came from a long line of Virginians, but when he was born, it was at the home of his maternal grandparents because his father was a brigadier general in the Army. He comes from a very distinguished military family. His father was a brigadier general, so he was born in Newburn, North Carolina. But his father soon bought a farm in Fauquier County, Virginia, and that's where he grew up. So I think if you talk to him, if, if we're able to talk to Lewis Armistead and go back in time, he would say he was a Virginian, but he was born in North Carolina. You can't uh, underestimate the impact of his family's history. Um, the Armistead men had been serving in the American military since 1680. I found his third great-grandfather was uh, Lieutenant Colonel of a horse militia in a county of Virginia at, at that point. They fought in the early, all the early American wars. And his father and three of his uncles were Army officers and fought in the War of 1812. Two of those uncles were named Lewis and Addison. They both died while in the service of their country. What's our guy's name? Lewis Addison Armistead. He's named for two uncles who gave their lives to the country in the War of 1812. And yet the most famous uncle is the third one, Lieutenant Colonel George Armistead, who defended Fort McHenry in the Battle of Baltimore when Francis Scott Key wrote the national anthem. And not only that, but George took the flag. This may be the, cop the hint, maybe the topic of my next book. George took the flag home, the, star the original Star Spangled Banner. It was in the private possession of his family for 90 years until his grandson gave it to the Smithsonian in the early 20th century. So if you go there tomorrow, that flag, that came directly out of the Armistead family. And then his father is a Brigadier General in the Army, third graduate ever from West Point. So there there's, was no question in my mind, Louis Armistead was gonna be a soldier. He grew up with that, with that military bearing. And it's no coincidence that his three younger brothers were Confederate soldiers. And it's no coincidence that his, his son was a Confederate soldier and on his staff at Gettysburg. He, military service was, was part of their DNA. He goes to what tries to follow his dad's footsteps. He goes to West Point in 1833. It's one of the probably the most storied career of anyone who never graduated. Three years on campus, never got out of the freshman class. He was sick a little bit. He wasn't a very good student, obviously. Got in a little bit of trouble, 
And then there was an incident in 1836 when uh, he was arrested because of disorderly conduct in the mess hall. And the records at West Point, I was up there, the records on exactly what happened are long gone, but the story that made it through the Confederate Army was that he got in a fight in the mess hall with another future Confederate general, Jubal Early, and hit Early over the head with a plate. And that was his, that was his uh, transgression, but it was serious at the time, so he talks to his dad and he writes a letter of resignation. Um, and his resignation is accepted. So you often read about Armistead that he was expelled from West Point. He was not. He, he might have been. He, he did this to avoid a court-martial, but he, uh, he, uh, he resigns. And then, you know, because he has great connections, three years later as a civilian, he gets a, he gets a commission in the U.S. Army as a second lieutenant to fight in a war down in Florida. And that then recharged his Army career. And actually his father was one of his commanders while in Florida. So his father's influence, I didn't realize this before I started doing the research. I didn't realize that much about the family. Uh, his father's influence was huge. And after the, after the uh, Second Seminole War, he is sent to the frontier to Fort Towson, and that's where in 1844 he meets a young man named Winfield Scott Hancock. They did not meet at West Point. The movie and the book kind of imply that, talks about them coming up together. Armistead, the older man, by seven years. He's born 1817, Hancock 1824. Uh, Hancock, Pennsylvanian, uh, born near and then grew up in Norristown at 16. He well, it's a great story. His, he doesn't have the pedigree of the Armisteads, obviously, but it, his father had a thing for historic names. His father's name was Benjamin Franklin Hancock. And so he, they, they have twin sons in 1824. They named him one Winfield Scott after the famed soldiers. They named the other Hillary Baker, which doesn't to us seem very famous, but I looked it up. He had been mayor of Philadelphia. He fought in the Revolution. It was a locally prominent name. Then they have a third son six years later. They name him John, John Hancock. And so John is with his brother Winfield at Gettysburg. So I, I hadn't realized this. Both Armistead and Hancock had family members with them at the battle. Um, Hancock does get an appointment with the West Point at 16, press up young man. The one thing that really struck me when he went there is we think of Big strapping Winfield Scott Hancock. He's always described as being such a big guy. You know, he's like 6'3, six, 6'4. Six, when he went, entered West Point, he was 5 feet 5 inches tall. He, you know, he had a growth spurt, but his fellow classmates write about him being their pet. So it's, it's interesting to find the stories behind the stories. He ends up being over 6 feet tall, but uh, you, you just dig into some of that. And then, you know, he graduates. He sent to Fort Towson. October of 1844 is the first time we have an army record of these two guys together on small, very remote post, out in the middle of nowhere, small group of officers. Of course, they're living together and working together, and they're, then they're transferred together to Fort Washington where there are only six officers. So this 16-month period is when the friendship really developed. I mean, they were, you know, they were, in some cases, the only officers on duty at times. So were they friends? Yes, they were friends. And then they go off to fight in, in the Mexican War, and the bond, you know, the bond is, even strengthens by, strengthened by being in battle together. They're both, they're both breveted for gallantry in the Mexican War. They served together in the, uh, the post-war occupation of Mexico between the end of the fighting and the beginning of, uh, or in signing the peace treaty, the U.S. Army occupied Mexico, which I didn't know but made sense. Because a lot of these things, you know, so that makes sense, but I just never studied it that much. They served in the same company. Armistead was the commander, and, and his lieutenants were Hancock and Henry Heath. So these guys are, you know, these Civil War soldiers are hanging out together uh, a long time before the Civil War. And, and, and so was there a friendship? Yes, there were bonds of friendship that went on. 
It doesn't mean they were almost brothers, however. You know, I, I, I think that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. They were friends, but it wasn't quite the relationship that you see in the, in the, in the movie and the, in the novel. So Armistead leaves West Point willingly, and, but he does become a commissioned officer. Yeah. And uh, so talk about the Seminole War, the Second Seminole War, and how he managed to become an officer without going to West Point. Yeah, he, he, uh, there's, you know, he, he leaves West Point in 1836, and there's about, uh, it's frustrating, there's about a three-year gap in his life. He, there's not much you can find about Lewis Armistead. May have gone to a minor military school. That's implied in one book, but I'm not sure. But summer of 1839, he gets a commission as a civilian, as a second lieutenant in the Army. There, there's a war. They need officers. But um, his class from West Point, his final class, graduated uh, July 1st, 1839. Their commissions date to that day. Armistead's commission dates July 10th. All those shenanigans, not even on campus in the last three years, he loses only nine days in rank. It, it's a good thing to know people in high places. Your dad's a brigadier general, and your uncle's a U.S. congressman, and they need officers, you're in the Army. And down he goes. And, uh, and he got into the combat like two days in, into his time in Florida. So it was a rude introduction. But some things, you know, some things really break in Lewis's favor. It's not long when he's down there that the Army makes a, a change in its command structure. And the new commander of all the U.S. troops in the Florida theater is Brigadier General Walker Keith Armistead. So Lewis is added to his staff as an aide. So his experience in that war changes dramatically. But he does get an up-close and personal view of how a general runs an army. And, uh, and he's with his dad for a while down there, which, which I'm sure had to be a thrill serving with your father. Uh, and, uh, but then his term expires, and he's sent, he's sent to the frontier, which, is, which happened to a lot of those guys. They're on the frontier. So he's in Oklahoma. And that's, you know, that started a long trek on the, on the frontier, uh, interrupted by the Mexican War and then ended by the Civil War when he uh, left and went to the Confederacy. Where was the frontier at that time? It was Oklahoma. It was, uh, that was the far edge of the country. It was on the, uh, on the edge of Texas, which wasn't yet a state. It was a republic. So that was literally the edge of the country. They were as far as you could be and still be in the United States. Um, so again, the fact, you know, the fact that there were so few officers on these posts, so few soldiers and so few officers, of course they became friends. Of course they bonded. They, it, it, it was all that could have happened. Live together, work together, share stories, uh, have a lot of fun drink a little beer, whatever it is they did. But that's where 16 months is also a, a long time. So I, you can see that the, uh, the friendship crystallizing at that point. So when they were out at Fort Towson, uh, were they engaged in combat with Native American peoples or were they just kind of garrisoning that space? It was, it was garrisoning and, and try to prevent, trying to prevent trouble. So there's no, and I, I think because of that, when you read accounts, not so much from them, but from other soldiers, it, you know, it's, it's largely boring existence for them. Um, there's, there's not a lot to do. If, there's not any, if there aren't any actual problem, problems, if there aren't any fighting, there's not a lot to do. So I think these guys did get a little, did get a little bored out there. Um, so they just had, they had to find things to amuse themselves. Um, uh, but it, it, and again, you, it's the reason you don't have a lot of specific accounts of what happened. Had there been battles, had there been fights, you, you would have seen that. There's just not a lot. So some of that we just, we just have to assume. As a historian, it's, it's frustrating, but you can't, you can't find any. You can't find everything, but you see them being together for so long, you know they're becoming friends. At one point, again, at Fort Washington, there were only six officers. They, there's a listing, I put it in the book, there's a listing of six officers. Armistead's listed third, Hancock's listed six. So, again, that's where the friendship really, really forms. Now, did they have families at this point? They did not at this point. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to go back. Armistead had, had a very, had a very, 
tragic personal life. Um, he lost two wives and two of his three children to disease on the frontier. Um, I don't know what that would have done to you emotionally. It was in a five-year period from 1850 to 1855, so it's after the war. I can't imagine what that would do to you emotionally. So he was already a hardened soldier. It added a level of bitterness, and he became sullen, which is one of the things I want to, points I try to make was the almost happy-go-lucky Armistead figure portrayed in the movie would not have been the way Lewis Armistead was at that point in his life. Um, Hancock ends up having about as stable a family life and marriage as you can have while being an army officer in the 19th century. He meets his wife, Elmira, uh, after the Mexican War when he is posted to St. Louis and he's out with Henry Heath one night and they meet this, this, uh, a young lady who Hancock is intrigued by, Elmira Russell. She becomes his wife. Um, they had two children, a son and a daughter. The family is with Hancock almost, almost all the time. Uh, on post. There were a couple of long marches, but other than that, they were together. They were with him in Florida when he served in the third Seminole War. They're with him in California. And Han Winfield and Elmira remain married until uh, Hancock dies in 1886. So very stable, so completely different personal lives. Uh, Armistead just deals with a lot of tragedy with, with deaths of four of the five people closest to him. You know, he marries, he gets married, has two children. Wife dies, gets married again. Second wife dies. Uh, believed to be cholera academics, uh, epidemics that were sweeping through the frontier at that point. So that would have been a lot to deal with, especially when you're generally alone a lot. So I, I, I can't imagine what that would have, would have done to him. We don't have, unfortunately, a lot of writing from Armistead. We have uh, some of his military letters. Uh, there aren't really, that, and that is probably one of the reasons that there, there hasn't been a lot written about him. It, it's, it's hard to get at his research. If, he, if there were some, uh, there was a, a fire at his family home, at his mother's home in the 1850s. It destroyed a lot of that home. A number of his letters may have been destroyed at that point. Uh, but we don't have a lot of, of evidence of him talking about these things. So, again, frustrating for a historian, but it's all you can do. You can just infer. But I think any human being can say if you had that much death in your family, it would have a, it would have a you know, debilitating effect on your outlook. You mentioned that Hancock's wife was with him on the frontier at some of these different posts. Uh, was Armistead's family with him as well? The, se the, the second group was, yes, yes. And two of his children uh, were, uh, are, are buried at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis. Uh, that's, that's where they died. So his wife, he would have been out on post and his wife would have been there. So, yes, uh, they, they were together, but, but briefly. And, and then uh, his second wife dies in, in the Kansas Territory. Uh, and and there's, there's some agonizing accounts of soldiers having to find Armistead out on patrol and bring him back because his wife has, his wife has passed. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, there's are emotional parts, and these are things that soldiers of that era, soldiers of all eras have to deal with, especially of that era, without the kind of communication we have today. That we sometimes forget when we're studying battles of wars that these guys had lives and, and, and personal lives and, and, and lots of trauma sometimes and, and, and drama and heartache. You mentioned that they were together a few different times for Towson during the Mexican War, California. Uh, were they writing letters to each other? If they were, none exist. I don't think they were. Uh, that was one of the things I thought, again, this almost brother thing that I went in thinking to try to find. There are no letters from Armistead to Hancock. There are no letters from Hancock to Armistead that exist. There are no letters from Armistead that even mention Hancock. 
I, you, I could find two letters from Hancock that did mention Armistead, but they were written after, several years after the Battle of Gettysburg, after he's dead, and he's inquiring about the circumstances of Armistead's wounding. So that, you know, that, okay, what, what was the relationship? They didn't write, because I was under the impression that they would have written to each other. Um, but if, if they did, none exist. So again, that, that raised the question. Again, for, another, for a number of other reasons, I think I pieced together that they were friends. It's just, it wasn't the same relationship that you have in the movie. So uh, I wish we'd had letters and you know, the, the book may have taken a different tone. And again, we, you can never say definitively they didn't have them. It's just, we haven't been able to find them and I don't think they exist. So when the Mexican War begins, are they still in the same unit or had they moved on to some other assignment? They, they were in the same regiment, but different companies, and they arrived at different times and in different places. They both were in, in recruiting duty back here in, uh, in the U.S., and both were very frustrated because young soldiers at that point uh, wanted to go to the war zone. They wanted to, to, to go fight for the U.S. Army. So they, they, Armist, Armistead got lucky. He got sent on a dispatch to deliver letters to Zachary Taylor. Maybe because Zachary Taylor knew his father. I, I don't know why he was assigned. So he gets there. He's not even with his original company, but he gets there and he hooks up with the 6th Infantry and he fights uh, through the remainder of the war. Hancock really badgered Army headquarters. Letters after letters. He wanted to be, he wanted to be there. And he gets sent uh, a few months later. So they arrive at different times, different places, but they end up together uh, in the assault toward Mexican City, toward Mexico City. And they're in, in some of the same battles in that vicinity, fighting against each other. Again, both breveted for gallantry. We do know a little bit more of what Armistead did. He's, you know, he's older, he's a higher ranking officer. And fortunately for a researcher like me, he testified in the court martial of another officer. So he described some of his activities of, of what his unit did in battle in the, in the Mexican War. So we have a few more details there. But they, they were together fighting in the same regiment and then they served in the same small company for a number of months after the war. Which, which at, at, at that point, again, without the war going on, just occupying, it was kind of relaxed time. Uh, I'm sure the, the friendship with Henry Heath continued to, continued to grow and bond. So they were eager to get to the war, and then they got there. Uh, how did they perform in combat? They, again, they're, they're, Armistead was breveted uh, for gallantry multiple times. Hancock breveted at least once. The one thing you notice about Armistead is throughout his entire Army career, wherever he's... Fellow soldiers are always writing about how brave he was. Extremely brave soldier. Uh, a number of accounts from Mexico at several of his battles, including he was the first U.S. Army officer into the ditch in the final attack on Chapultepec. And a number of officers, uh, including Cadmus Wilcox, who later served to the Confederate Army in Gettysburg, write about that. So it, it impressed people enough that other people were writing about his bravery. We know a little less about Hancock. Again, he's pretty much a junior officer at that point. He's just, he, he's not that far out of West Point. Um, he hasn't risen the ranks. Uh, quite yet. You know, he, he graduated from West Point in, in 1844. So this is you know, between 1846 and 48. So again, just because of the court martial, we, we don't, I think those of us in history, uh, we're often reading uh, books about famous generals and there are lots of papers and lots of records. The farther down the ranks you go, there are less of those. There are less of counts of exactly what everybody did in every, in every battle. So I was able to find enough, I think, to, to write hopefully a, co a coherent story. I wish, I obviously, you're always uh, left wishing you could have found more. So the Mexican War is over. Do they return then to the frontier? They do. They, they, bo they both go to the frontier. Uh, they're sent to Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis. But 
during this period, a, a, a lot of times, even when they're, when they're uh, stationed together, posted together, Armistead is off and off on uh, detached service for whatever reasons. They're not together on post. Armistead for a while uh, was, was, in, was in garrison duty in, in Kentucky and actually got a disease in his arm and he was out of action for a few months. Uh, but they're, they're together, they're posted together a couple of times. They're just not active with one another. Again, for whatever reason, the, the, the detached service happens. Uh, and, and then their personal lives change. Again, Hancock, again, very stable family life. He, he clearly becomes uh, a, a family man while Armistead is dealing with all this tragedy. And then they get, then they get separated. And Armistead uh, tends to be, be moved around a lot more. And if they communicated, we don't have any, uh, any evidence of that. So uh, in the 1850s, this period between the Mexican War and the beginning of the Civil War, uh, what was it like to be an army officer? What, did, were they getting promoted? Were they getting opportunities? It was very slow. It would have been very frustrating. Um, and, and I think ultimately you'll see that's why some of these guys saw the Civil War as such an opportunity because they, they could move up. Uh, Hancock, even by the time the, the, the Civil War broke out, was, was only a captain. Now, Armistead had been breveted to major. He'd been in the Army a long time. It was tough sledding. The Army was a small group. And the the senior officers didn't leave, so it was a, you know, it, it was a, a glacial pace, and it had to be frustrating for all of these guys, uh, who wanted to keep moving up in the in the ranks, and there just wasn't that opportunity. If there wasn't a war, there wasn't an opportunity to do that. So, uh, you, you wonder what their futures would have been, had the Civil War not happened. You know, would they have stayed in the army? Would they, you know, some of these guys just left and. Hancock certainly could have used his West Point education to do, to do something else had he wanted to. Armistead didn't have that. He might have been kind of stuck being in the Army. But it was, it was frustrating for, for, uh, for those guys. And you see, these guys, as, as we know from, uh, from the Mexican War and the Civil War, these guys are pretty good soldiers. And even, even a top-notch soldier like Hancock, it took a lot of time. And I think that's one of the reasons he became a quartermaster because that was maybe an easier path to get on the staff, an easier path to promotion and get paid than if you were just a, a, you know, a foot soldier in the infantry. Now you mentioned uh, Hancock's West Point education. Uh, what kind of education was that? It's, at that point, still mostly engineering. You know, there, uh, when, when, when uh, Armistead's father went, it was strictly in an engineering school. Arm Armistead's first year there, the two classes you took as a, as a freshman were uh, engineering and, and French, math and French, math leading to engineering and, and French. So you, we sometimes think that they're, they're taught how to command troops on a battlefield. By the time Hancock got there, there might have been a little of that, but not much. It was it, Jefferson's idea was to create engineers. So that's why you see a lot of these guys, a lot of the guys who came back to the Union Army in the Civil War had left the U.S. Army to become engineers in the 1850s. And then they went back into the Army, into the Union Army when the Civil War began. So it did give you a path for another career, but it wasn't quite the same. It wasn't, you know, the vast study of military tactics uh, constantly 24-7 that we might think it was. Now, Armistead, he, he left West Point and was commissioned separately. Did that have a negative impact on his career? Was he considered the equal of the West Point graduates? I, th I think once you're in the army, you're in it. It's the date of your the date of your commission. So he did lose nine days from his class. So he's always always going to be behind them. But from that point on, no. And he proved himself to be a very valuable and, and effective soldier. So I think one, once that happened, you could fight. You could fight. Now the other thing is he had a huge advantage, 
and that his, the family name was well known within the army. Again, two uncles who died in the War of 1812, a third uncle who defended Fort McHenry, uh, and that his dad is a brigadier general. As with today, that definitely helped. And his father doted on him, uh, got him some advantages from the West Point days on. He certainly got some of his uh, good, be <laughs> uh, excellent treatment because of who his father was. And he got, he got a lot of leave. I don't know if that was, you know, without researching every soldier, I don't know if that was normal. I, I have to believe he was treated a little differently because of who his father was. They knew Brigadier General Walker Keith Armistead. Even after he passed, they knew that Lewis had that pedigree. And pedigree today in the Army and other businesses, you know, it, it, it means a lot. So that was of great benefit to him. It's why looking back, doing the research, I realized I had to write a lot about his family history in the beginning to underscore that for the reader. You can't keep pounding on it throughout, but you can kind of tell that, that the rest of the Army knows the Armistead name and who his father was. And that definitely helped him. And Hancock did not, have, did not have that same kind of advantage. So in the 1850s, as they're getting closer to what would become the Civil War, uh, it, was, it was a very politically contentious time. Uh, what were their politics at that time? It's really hard to, uh, to find Armistead's politics. Um, he didn't write about it, and others didn't write it. But that's that we can we can guess, but we don't know. Uh, Hancock was a solid Democrat. His father was a Democrat. He grew up. There was the Conservative Party back then. You know, there's some confusion now because the party labels are are different today than they were back then. Uh, I, not that he was all that politically active. He wasn't. But those were his beliefs. And and as we find out later in his life, uh, he's a Democrat, and he. Is, is the Democratic nominee for president in 1880, but he also, which I didn't really realize, he was in the nomination process two times before that. So he actually ran for president three times, but always on the Democratic side. So we know his politics. We don't really know uh, Louis Armistead's politics. Did Armistead's family own slaves? Yes, they did. I hadn't uh, seen that written anywhere before because you don't delve a lot into these guys' backgrounds. Long line of slaveholders from Virginia, the Armisteads. Uh, and uh, I found the census when Lu on uh, their, their father's farm in 1830 when Lewis was 13 years old. Uh, there are 19 slaves listed. So this is, you know, he's a teenager. So he and his brothers grew up on a farm where slavery to them was, was normal. It was, it was what they grew into. Uh, and Lewis later in his life owned at least one, maybe two slaves briefly. Uh, I found solid evidence of, of, of one. Uh, that he did. So it, slavery was a part of his life, it was part of his family's life. And sometimes I think, you know, earlier Civil War histories did not go into that as much, did not mention as much. I'd never seen that about Lewis Armistead. So I thought it was important to, you know, just so the reader understands uh, where you're coming from here. So as the crisis that would lead to, lead to secession begins there in California, uh, at what point do they realize that they have choices to make? I, probably from the time South Carolina seceded. Uh, Lewis is back home. He, he, he works the leave of absence system, and he's, he's back home in Virginia for almost the entire year of 1860. I don't know how he did that. He got a year's long leave of absence. He's even listed in the Fauquier County, Virginia census that summer as though he lived there. Um, and there's, there's a, a story that I found in another biography of, of the Confederate Cavalier Turner Ashby who lived nearby in Fauquier County. Lewis is back home. He's re, re, you know, reacquainting with his mother and his son and some other friends. And he's over at Ashby's place one day. 
And Ashby had commanded a militia unit during this period, and they actually were called into the John Brown raid. Ashby and his men were there when, when John Brown was hanged. So he has a pretty good sense of what's going on in the country. He thinks there's going to be a civil war. Armistead's been away for so long, it's almost as though he can't get his arms around that. And at one point, he's, he thinks Ashby's being too negative, and he says, Turner, do not talk so. Let me sing you a song and wipe away your gloom. And with that, Louis Armistead started to sing the Star Spangled Banner. And Ashby joins in. This is nine months before they become Confederate officers uh, in the Civil War. Lewis does have to get back to, to work, though. He gets, he gets back to California very late December 1860. Uh, South Carolina has seceded. They wouldn't have probably known it yet with the way news traveled. But early 1861, there's a lot of this discussion. And Mrs. Hancock writes about a lot of the Southern soldiers, including Armistead, going to Hancock for advice. Uh, he was a well-respected officer. And he didn't have much. He basically said, threw up his arms and said, I can't give you advice. You have to make your own choice. I hope you make the right decision. Um, Hancock's decision was very easy. He was not an abolitionist, but he was 100% a union man. He was going to fight for the union. Very easy decision for him. Um, he talked to Armistead, talked to Richard Garnett, uh, certainly some other uh, Southern officers, Southern-born officers that Mrs. Pickett, or I'm sorry, Mrs. Ms. Hancock uh, doesn't name. And Armistead struggles with that decision. He's, he's going back and forth. What do I do? As we discussed, he's a Virginian, so he's a native Southerner. He comes from a long line of slaveholders. He grew up on a, on a farm with slaves. He believes in the Southern cause. Um, but his entire family history is tied to the U.S. Army. And it's tied to, this, to this, the original Star Spangled Banner. And because, especially because of the tragedy he'd been through, the Army was his life. These Army officers, they, they talk about brothers in arms, they were his brothers in arms. This is going to be a difficult choice for him to fight against these guys who have been his friends, but he has to make one, and he eventually, he, as we know, he chooses to go for the Confederacy. So he struggled. I think some others struggled, and uh, others, others did not, and you know, they either fought for cause or they fought for the, for the part of the country where they grew up. So when Armistead goes into the Confederate Army, does he go into the same rank he was at when he was in the U.S. Army? He, no, you, 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 don't, you don't do that. The, the ranks were different in the, uh, once you got into the Confederate Army. He becomes a colonel. He comes back east. He becomes a colonel of a regiment, uh, and then he moves pretty quickly up to brigade command, and he becomes a, a brigade. And it was curious to me that he never really rose above that. Uh, he became a brigadier general, but it doesn't appear that he ever was considered for division, much less a much less a corps. Which is surprising in that you think he was such a veteran army officer, and though he hadn't graduated, he'd gone to West Point. Um, so there must have been some assessment that you know this this was his level. He was a he was a brigadier. That's what he could do. He was a good fighting brigadier. Um, and there was a part of the story of the of the farewell out in California is that Mrs. Hancock writes that Armistead brought along his U.S. Army Major's uniform to give to Hancock in case he might sometime need it. Hancock was only a captain. He never needed the Major's uniform because when he came east, he became a general. Uh, George McClellan was his good friend and knew, knew Hancock, and he, made it. he was making lots of people generals. So you moved up the ranks much quicker in the, in the Civil War armies than you did in the, in the old U.S. Army. Uh, but they, they both got command positions uh, right away. So Hancock goes from being one army officer in Los Angeles and a captain to going to be a general commanding thousands of troops. Uh, how did he make that transition? Yeah. 
incredibly well, incredibly well. One of his, one of his staff officers wrote a, wrote a, a, a really good, I guess you'd call it a biography uh, of Hancock, and he talks about that he thought the quartermaster duties and the way Hancock did paperwork really prepared him for running larger, you know, larger bodies. I mean, he understood supply. He understood those aspects beyond the fighting. He was a good fighter, but he, he understood those aspects. So he adapted uh, pretty well. But these guys had to. They didn't have enough, you know, they didn't have enough quote qualified officers to fill all those positions. And and as we know, some of them didn't fill the roles very well, and that was part of the problem, especially on the Union side early. Uh, early in the war, but Hancock just had that knack. And he, he was one of those, and people write about his Gettysburg days, but it was from the start. He was one of those guys who just had a commanding presence. We all know people like that in our lives. If something happened, we'd follow this guy, just because, you know, whether he, you could have a polo shirt and shirt, shorts, but he, he seems like a commanding, you know, commanding officer. And I think Hancock was one of those guys. He had a, a regal bearing, he had a voice that did that. So he was, uh, he was a kind of a natural born commander, I believe. So how many times were they uh, in armies that were facing off against each other? Several times. Um, they were both in seven days. They were both in Antietam. They were actually pretty physically close at Antietam. But they, it's, it's curious to me, they never fought against each other until Gettysburg. That was the, that was the one time. And we don't have any, any really detail of them talking about or writing about each other during the war. I don't think they did. I think sometimes that's romanticized about them and other people. These were hard-nosed soldiers. They're in the Army to do a job. They're fighting a war. They're not, you know, they're not doing those kinds of things. I think we get, you know, we get a little mis misconception there. So they did not, uh, obviously not, not communicate, but obviously even didn't face each other on the battlefield until Gettysburg. Again, one of the things that makes this story most, uh, so compelling, you know, checking all the boxes as we talked earlier, they're in different armies. They make this decision. They, they say goodbye to each other out in California, but they don't meet for two years. And when they do meet, it's the famous, most famous attack of the war. That just kind of you know, adds to the, to the drama of this all. If you, if you were writing a novel, you would write something like that. So you mentioned that Armistead kind of reached his limit in terms of rank and promotion. Uh, what was Hancock's trajectory during the war? He, he uh, I, I think... He became a, a, a major general. I, I think he would have gone, he could have gone even higher had he not been wounded at Gettysburg. Uh, he recovered, but he never really recovered. Uh, he wasn't the same after Gettysburg. I think that's, there, there may not have been an opening, but I think that's why he didn't rise to higher command. He, he seemed to be someone who was on that kind of traje trajectory. But he did remain in the Army uh, for the rest of his life and had several key posts in the Army uh, especially back in the East in his later years and, and oversaw Ulysses S. Grant's funeral. So he was a well-respected Army officer through, uh, uh, through the rest of his life. So uh, let's talk about Gettysburg. And at, uh, at some point, uh, General Hooker is, is removed from the Army of the Potomac, uh, command of the Army of the Potomac, and General Meade is put in command there. How many days before Gettysburg was that? Three or four, right? It's, it's June 28th, I think. Uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's amazing when you think, uh, and Meade, I think, you know, n never gets enough credit for how challenging that would have been to take over. The, of course, he doesn't know there's going to be a battle in three days, but all of a sudden uh, he's put in charge of the Army in arguably one of the most pivotal, if not the most pivotal, battles of the war. So he's, uh, he's reorganizing quickly, and he has to rely on, the, the only thing he could do is rely on the people that he trusted. 
because he doesn't know everybody and everybody hasn't served under his command. He's going from core command to, to running the army. Fortunately, uh, he knew Hancock and he trusted Hancock. So does he, as the battle is beginning on July 1st and reports of the battle are coming back to Meade, what, what does he have Hancock do? Yeah, Hancock, he, he sends Hancock to, up to Gettysburg uh, to be his eyes and ears. Uh, and, and he gives him uh, an order that he can command the field, even though he wouldn't be the senior officer. Uh, Meade was given that, you know, that power by by army headquarters down in 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 Washington said you you do what you have to do so Hancock comes to Gettysburg uh, in the middle of basically when the army is retreating from its first day's defeat uh, back to Cemetery Hill and he takes charge and there is a there is a obviously the legendary battle with another general Oliver Otis Howard who was in charge before Hancock got there and who outranked Hancock and one of the challenges of being a historian is there are so many accounts, so many conflicting accounts of what was said and what really happened. Um, we follow our favorite historians and we tend to believe that their accounts are accurate. When you get into this, you realize what really happened. Because clearly you have Howard's people taking Howard's side and Hancock's people taking Hancock's side. But one thing I think, I think you can tell, the, the soldiers, you talk about the commanding presence, Hancock had that commanding presence. He was the one who really, who really took charge. Howard gets credit for for recognizing this position as an important position. But Hancock really took control once he was there. He calms the troops. Uh, there is no coincidence that his statue at Gettysburg is on East Cemetery Hill and on it, Hancock is on his horse with his hand out like this. He's calming the troops. That's from that moment on July 1st when, when the, the troops were stampeding back to their, to their final line. And he actually, if, if you look, he took control and he moved enough troops around that he actually created the beginning of the famous fishhook line that the Union Army ended up defending. Winfield Scott Hancock did that. I, I, I've got to say, Phil, I knew he was important uh, in Gettysburg, but when you, when you get a situation, when you're just researching one guy on the Union side, I never grasped how important he was on all three days. He played a key, a key, key role in all three days of that battle. Maybe no greater than what he did on the second day. It's astounding what he did. When you study the whole battle, you lose a little bit that, that, about that because there are so many other stories. When you just focus on what Hancock did, it is amazing. They were by far his, his best three days in Army Command. But as we know, if you're, if you're going to, in the Civil War, if you're going to have three good days, you want those to be at Gettysburg. And, he, you know, he, he set up the Army that night, July 1st, to do what it did then on July 2nd and 3rd. Still a lot of work to be done, but the, the foundation was there. There's always the debate as to whether Hancock selected the battlefield. Did he actually select it? Um, he, there's that reputation. Meade, in differing accounts, said he did and he didn't. He's, and then Meade started to say, well, I, I selected it. Sometimes you know, these, there's a little revisionist history to, here too. But there's no doubt that Hancock didn't tell him we shouldn't fight here. Hancock's reluctance to, do, to pull back meant that in many ways he selected the battlefield. So he deserves a lot of credit, if not the full lion's share credit for, for, you know, for doing that. Meade had to make the ultimate decision, uh, but at some point they were going to stay here. And, and Winfield Scott Hancock had a lot to do with that. What was his role on the second day? His role on the second day was to be everywhere at all times. It's, it's amazing where he was. He, you know, they're, they're forming, they're, more troops are coming in, they're forming their line on, on Cemetery Ridge, and nobody really knows what's going to unfold that day. 
uh, as we know, the Dan Sickles controversy, where Dan Sickles, against orders, moves the Third Corps forward, which caused all sorts of chaos. You can debate that move, caused all sorts of chaos. And Hancock is then, at one point, dispatched to take over the Third Corps as well. Um, he was well-versed in profanity. <laughs> he issued a lot of profanity then because he had his own second corps right here. I want to command these guys. Now I've got to command this guy's corps, which is, which is a mess. But he basically, for the rest of that day, was moving troops and plugging holes. You know, the Ashland attack was to create holes from the Confederate side, and it did. And Hancock plugged them. You know, he sent Caldwell's division to the wheat field. He plugged troops in against Barksdale. He plugged the first Minnesota in when it appeared the line was going to be breaking right near where the Pennsylvania Memorial is today. That one regiment, he, he fired them forward. But then he kept going uh, because the Confederate attack uh, continued. Uh, they, they came over the same field as Pickett's Charge. He got more troops to plug that line of what is now the angle. And then in the evening, the 11th Corps is under siege on East Cemetery Hill, and he sends troops over there to plug that hole. So every asset of that, ba every asset of that battle, every aspect, uh, Hancock had a role in it. It's just, it's just amazing when you think about it. And, you know, there may be some people watching this and saying, yeah, I know that, I know that, which we do. But to get it all at once, just focus on that, it is amazing what he did that day. And then, of course, he's at uh, Meade's Council of War that night at the Leicester House. Uh, and, and he, wants to, he wants to stay and fight. He said, it's, it, you know, it's, the, the time for retreat is over. So he played a huge aspect. Uh, as much as he did in the third day, as much as he did in the first, I think his greatest day was the second day at Gettysburg. So as Hancock is doing that, uh, where's Armistead and when does he get to Gettysburg? Good, good point. Armistead, uh, first day, they're still back in Chambersburg. Uh, they were helping, Pickett's division was helping to guard the trains. They don't leave until early in the morning of the 2nd. They get to the battlefield the afternoon of the 2nd. Pickett wants to go right into battle. The battle was raging. Uh, Lee said, I need to hold you. I need to hold you in reserve. He needed some fresh troops. And they, had, they had marched all day. So they weren't even there on the first day, and they weren't really even witnesses. They were, they were behind the lines on the second day. So they're kind of biding their time uh, waiting to get into battle. And I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that was, there was nervousness and anxiousness, but you know inevitably you're going into the battle. And the, the one thing about Armistead's brigade, they had not been in that many pitched battles. There were only a couple. Um, so they were, when we think of them as veterans, they weren't all that tested. And, and I think they probably wanted to prove their mettle too. So they're still waiting for their chance uh, on the third. So was, uh, when, when they are thrown in for the famous Pickett's Charge, was, was this a moment where Armistead proved himself? Well, I think, again, his bravery, if, if you follow his career, it's not surprising that he was brave. A lot of us only know, and I would admit to being one of those, a lot of us only knew Armistead from Gettysburg. So you think it started there. He was, you know, he was that kind of soldier he always had been, and they were looking for their opportunity. And he was actually upset when the lines were set because he was actually put in the second line. Uh, Pickett's division was arrayed in three brigades, but there were two brigades out front and one brigade in reserve. Garnett and Kemper were out front, and Armistead was in reserve. Armistead howled about that. He, he wanted to be on the front line. He was very upset. And uh, they sent an officer to Longstreet, and Longstreet said, uh, just paraphrasing, tell Armistead, you know, <laughs> hang in there. We'll all be going in presently, um, uh, and, and, and he'll get his chance. And he can, he, can make it up when we're, he can make it up when we're on the move. So Armistead was disappointed that he was in reserve. 
I think though, looking back and now, the one reason he was in that reserve line is one of the reasons they got so far because they didn't take as much damage. So they're, you know, that morning, um, they're, they're posted along a tree line. One, one regiment is in the trees, most are out in the baking sun. They're, they're under a rise where they are. If you walk out there on the battlefield, it's, it's not where the Virginia Memorial is. It's, it's a few hundred yards to the right where they were. Uh, they have some cover, so the, you know, the Union can't see them, but they can't see the Union either. Um, so a lot of the foot soldiers don't see what they're about to face until they actually start their march. So at, at what point, we only have a few minutes left, but uh, at what point is Armistead killed? They come over the wall. He leads about 100 men over the wall and he is killed as he, as he gets into the angle. There's debate, you know, there's a marker now uh, that's a little bit into the angle near the second line of guns. Um, you can, whatever your theory is, you can find an eyewitness account to support it. Some said he got hit and fell as soon as he crossed the wall. There's one account that said he got hit, wounded and staggered forward to the second line of guns. And there's, there are other multiple accounts that said he went all the way to the second line of guns and that's where he fell. So who knows, there are more accounts that, uh, that, that say he got all the way to the second line of guns, including from the Union commander at the wall, Alexander Webb. So I tend to believe that the marker is fairly accurately placed. We'll, uh, we'll never know. But he was wounded at least twice, and that's where he fell. And uh, when did Hancock find out that Armistead, that Armistead had been op opposite of him? Yeah, by quirk of fate, uh, a Union staff officer comes up and sees Armistead wounded. It's Captain Henry Bingham of Hancock's staff. So... Uh, Armistead hears the Hancock connection and identifies Hancock as an old and valued friend. And he gives, uh, he gives Bingham some belongings. Uh, the movie implies that they found out right away, but Hancock, they didn't know it at that time. Hancock was wounded about the same time. Uh, Bingham did not know that at the time. So it's not until Bingham goes back to Hancock, uh, what, 20 minutes later, I don't know exactly what the time frame is, not long, but uh, probably 20 minutes, that he tells Hancock of Armistead's wounding. So that's when, that's when they find out. And then Hancock, or I'm sorry, Armistead is carried to the, to the uh, George Spangler farm, which is now a restored uh, Civil War hospital at Gettysburg. The Gettysburg Foundation has done a great job up there. So you can go see a Civil War hospital, and that's the place where two days later that Lewis Armistead died. Well, we've been speaking with Tom McMillan. He is the author of Armistead and Hancock, Behind the Gettysburg Legend of Two Friends at the Turning Point of the Civil War. Thank you for joining me. Phil, thanks so much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.